thank you for coming. I suspect as is the MIT way, even more people will come in even later than this, but we will go ahead and get started. Um, as many of you know, I'm Heather Hendershot, trained graduate studies and trained media studies. Uh, you also probably know that I'm strictly a Star Trek person, but I'm still going to say Happy Star Wars Day in the spirit of ecumenicism. So, may the fourth be with you. Um, our speakers today are Brian Larkin and Stefan Andreopoulos, uh, and the topic of their talk on, yeah, here we go, contingency of comparison, uh, rethinking comparative media. Uh, Brian Larkin is professor of anthropology at Barnard College, Columbia University, and he's the author of Signal and Noise, Media Infrastructure and Urban Culture in Nigeria, which probably many of you are very familiar with. I think it made a really big impact in both anthropology and in media studies and in everyone who sort of defines themselves between those two fields and across those two fields. Um, he writes on issues of media, religion, infrastructure, and urban studies in Nigeria and is currently completing a manuscript for a book called Secular Machines, Media, and the Materiality of Islamic Revival, which analyzes the role media playing the rise of new Islamic movements in Nigeria and explores theoretical questions about technology and religion. And Stefan Andreopoulos, Good <laughs> is professor in the Department of Germanic Languages and Literatures at Columbia, the author of Ghostly Apparitions, German Idealism, the Gothic Novel, and Optical Media. I initially read that as the graphic novel. Graphic <laughs> novel in German idealism, but no. <laughs> um, which was named Book of the Year by the Times Literary Supplement. And his previous book, Possessed Hypnotic Crimes, Corporate Fiction, and the Invention of Cinema, won the SLSA Michelle Kendrick Award for Best Academic Book on Literature, Science, and the Arts. Um, so welcome. And are you guys, you guys are sort of switching off in the middle of your talk? OK, very good. So who's going first? Wonderful. Thank you. So, um, so first of all, we would like to thank Heather Hendershot very much for this generous introduction, and we would like to thank all of you for attending our talk. And I, well, maybe I will be sitting after. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, but if you have a hard time understanding, please let me know. So. Um, so comparative media is an idea that is emerging in different domains as a way of thinking about media and film and clearly MIT and your program has been central in defining one way of thinking about this and it has been influential on us. Unlike at MIT, however, at Columbia, we did not have an institutional structure for comparative media studies. Instead, our interest in comparative media grew from a series of faculty seminars that gathered scholars from different disciplines who all were interested in media theory broadly construed. And as a consequence, we developed our ideas from discussions with scholars in art history, German film, anthropology, music, French, South Asian, and East Asian studies. Comparative media for us became a way of thinking about media as well as a subject matter to be thought about. And this creates a, a certain friction, a productive friction, we think, that is built into how we approach comparative media. For our project cuts across various fields and disciplines straddling the humanities and the social sciences. 
we borrow freely from the many approaches in film and media studies that ask similar questions. And we are thinking of the archaeology of media, early cinema, history of science, infrastructure studies, and others. And we do not come to a hard definition of what comparative media should be. Instead, we mobilize a series of questions or ways of thinking about media that we draw upon. Given your deep thinking on the subject, we welcome hearing your thoughts about what we are doing, how about what we are doing coincides with and differs from your own research projects and pedagogy. And so what do we mean when we use the term comparative media to describe our approach to the theory and history of media? We would like to suggest that it is useful to compare media in three different ways. You know, the first one could be comparing different cultural and technical materialities of media, particularly historically. A second kind of comparison would be comparing different media as they interact with each other in a specific historical and geographical context. And the third one that we will be focusing on mostly in our talk today is comparing materializations and adaptations of the same medium in different cultural and geographical locations. All three modes of comparison have the effect of highlighting contingency and of troubling the certainty of normative and teleological master narratives of me media history. So now somehow the cursor doesn't move. Okay. So instead of replicating narratives of, go of a goal-oriented invention of a new medium, we would like to emphasize the various contingencies that mark the emergence, implementation, and adaptation of media technologies in various specific contexts. In our view, the emergence of a new medium, be that print in Renaissance Europe, or cinema in late 19th century and early 20th century Shanghai always takes place by means of a reciprocal interaction between various technical and cultural materialities. The nature or ontology of a medium is not only determined by its technological parameters, as argued by scholars as diverse as Marshall McLuhan or Friedrich Kittler. Instead, it is a mutual exchange and interaction between technical, cultural, political, and economic conditions that shapes the qualities of a medium. And we suggest to define that term as a habituated use of a technology that is molded by specific cultural and aesthetic forms. This stance does not mean that we consider hardware or technology as unimportant or irrelevant, but it implies that a serious historicist or archaeological study of media is always already comparative, even if it does not use the term explicitly. Instead of focusing on one single domain that is part of the various practices and materialities that shape the ostensibly stable nature of a medium, we suggest to explore different contexts and cultural practices that are interrelated. To be clear, what we mean by this is not that it is not a stable, predefined medium that exists in a different cultural context in the past, but that the nature of a medium itself emerges in reciprocal interaction between a technology and the specific cultural formations in which it develops. Drawing on Gilbert Simondon and Leroy Gorin, we see technologies not as invented and thereafter invariant machines that overcoat subjects and territories uniformly, but as always in a process of coming to be. What Simondon refers to as individuation that takes place through the interaction of the machine with an enabling milieu. 
That milieu is in itself shaped by technology, but it also feeds back into the constitution of the technology. One apt example for this interconnection of seemingly remote and separate fields is the emergence of television around 1900, which is in part made possible by scientific and technological advances. However, the engineers and scientists who were engaged in the construction of electrical television also relied on and undertook psychical research into television in time and space. That's how they called it at the time. So the gradual emergence of television in the late 19th century then is dependent not only on factors imminent to technology, but also on spiritualist research into the clairvoyance of somnambulist mediums. Important components of early television sets, such as the cathode ray tube, were designed by scientists also engaged in psychical research. At the same time, occultist descriptions of psychic organs invoked technological innovations, such as wireless telegraphy, as proof for thought transference and telepathy. Ostensibly obscure theories of psychic television in time and space thus played a crucial role for the concurrent emergence of the technological medium, while newly emerging communication media engendered a surprising wave of psychical research. William Crookes, who invented the cathode ray tube, was also president of the Spiritist Society of Psychical Research, and he pursued studies on clairvoyance and thought transference. Studying the history of a newly emerging medium therefore means that we juxtapose and compare various contemporaneous practices and fields that are distinct but that nonetheless interact with each other. So what implications can we draw from this example for comparative media? While dominant narratives of European modernity are predicated on the success of the scientific challenge to religion and the demise of faith in the 19th century, we can see that the attempt to provide a scientific base for each old desires to, see, to deal with the dead was crucial for technical television. This cultural and religious outside functioned as a necessary but not sufficient cause for the emergence of television as we know it, rooted in the historical specificity of fantasy Europe. And this also poses a challenge for how we think about media theoretically and methodologically. For how can we take the assertion that this outsides constitutes television? In what way might the medium be constituted by other external factors? from economic systems to forms of political rule. If spiritualism did help constitute television, how far did that influence extend? Once invented, was television a stable technological object whose origins, while interesting, are no longer relevant? Or when that object was introduced into colonial Africa, state socialist China, or authoritarian Chile, is it the same object imposing itself everywhere? Or is the ontology mutable? dependent on its engagement with other cultural and political conditions and contexts. In order to elaborate on questions such as these ones and on these various modes of comparison that we suggested earlier, we want now to turn to the specific examples of the emergence of the modern spectator and auditor. In which ways does a comparative approach alter this canonical topic for media theory, art history, sound studies, film theory, and visual culture? Two of the figures most associated with this lineage of thought are our, are our colleague Jonathan Query and Jonathan Stern, both figures 
whose research has influenced our own. Both examine in detail the technical histories of media, both see these histories in relation to an expanding capitalism, and both draw heavily on the work of Walter Benjamin and Michel Foucault in arguing that the transformation in visual and oral technologies gave rise to new practices of observing and listening that were constitutive in the formation of the subject in modernity. Take this image that Jonathan Corey uses in his article on Gericho and modern visuality in Grey Room. So this is um, William Hogarth's Southwark Fur, and Crowley examines Hogarth's engraving as highlighting a transformation that he has been exploring throughout his career. He is interested in how revolutions of the technologies and practices of image display and reception are related to a modern subject that is part of and also constituted by the emergence of modern commodity capitalism. Here, Hogarth disprints a carnivalesque county fair with acrobats, musicians, men importuning women, gamblers, the press, press of flesh of the crowd, fights breaking out, <coughs> seductions being enacted. The engraving shows us a world in which people are actively involved in producing the culture they consume. But in the foreground, on the left, are two figures who presage the coming transformation. So this. Separated from the crowd, these men are peering in at an image that is not part of the proceedings of the fair, but detached from it, located inside a box where it is hidden from others. For Curry, these two figures presage a transformation of visual and commodity cultures. They introduce a radical break between spectator and performer image. <coughs> As Query describes it, and this is the first quote, here we have two spectators who are constituted and positioned very differently than anyone else depicted in the print. These immobile and absorbed figures interfacing with the window of the peep show anticipate one of the primary pathways that popular culture will trace out of the 18th century, one that obliterates the carnival. Hogarth's image, as Query reads it, shows the remains of a traditional social world in an exhausted condition, about to be transformed by dynamic new forms of industrialization, alienation, individualism, and urbanization associated with the emergence of industrial society. In the frame of the engraving, this large-scale transformation can be discerned in a new mode of visual entertainment that constitutes and represents these changes. And now we go to the second quote. So for Query, then Hogarth's print reveals how the carnival disorder of the pre-modern fairground, its profuse grotesquerie and strangeness is deposed onto the peep show model of visual attraction and how the multifaceted festival participant is turned into an individualized and self-regulated spectator. So we have this shift from participant to spectator. And spectatorship for Quarry is not simply a way of looking, but it relates far more broadly to the means by which subjects inhabit modern capitalism. For Query, Hogarth's peep show is a harbinger for the proliferation of new visual technologies available to urban consumers in the 19th century. Technologies that enacted a series of operations upon those who use them. As Curry argues, these new technologies brought about 
the relative separation of a viewer from a milieu of distraction and the detachment of an image from a larger background. The physical device is simply a figure for a broader psychic perceptual <coughs> and social insularity of the viewer, as well as a persuasive privileging of vision over the sense and touch, over the sense and touch and smell. These entertainments were active technologies in training and cultivating new sports of spectators that were necessary for an economy shifting from the focus of production on production to one based <coughs> on consumption and the mobilization of the image as a key source of value. We thus have a major component of the making of the 19th century is the education and training of both. This is now the second of both the individuals and the collectivities for whom new forms of visual consumption were being produced. And this included the self-disciplining of the spectator as an occupant of or visitor to interior spaces um, and institutions. This is an important argument and it has influenced both of us and it is also core to contemporary questions about the attention economy and immaterial labor. But we can step back for a moment and examine the constellation query needs to produce this argument. First, he depends on a language of rupture, the obliteration of the early modern carnivalesque subject by the rise of the modern spectator as part of the broader logic of modernization. The transformation query describes is not just about modes of looking, but it juxtaposes different modes of fashioning subjects who become suitable for the needs of a new economy. Crowley's analysis in this resembles Jonathan Stern's influential examination of the ordile techniques that have produced the modern listening subject. And with this, I hand over to Brian. Cheers, thank you. So similar to Carreri, Stern examines the interface between the emergence of new listening technologies, their reciprocal interaction with the proliferation of listening techniques, and the production of modern subjects. What Stern describes as modern ordile techniques refers to, quote, a concrete set of limited and related practices of listening and practical orientations toward listening, which are based on the individuation of the listener. So just like the spectator individuates, it produces a single subject who looks by themselves at an image in a darkened auditorium of a cinema you're watching as an individual isolated from those around you. Stern makes the same argument for um, listening, that we have these practices of individuation that come with the rise of modern listening. Um, Stern highlights the use of modern listening technologies, stethoscopes, headphones. These are processes that isolate us from sound away so we can focus in and individuate specific sounds. Um, these are used by skilled technicians, doctors, telegraph operators to separate sounds, to focus in on the sounds that are relevant and worthy of attention, and we can filter out other sounds as noise. These ordile techniques presuppose the separation of some sounds which are deemed worthy of attention from others that are simply noise. And Stern points out that the rise of these ordo techniques get tied to um, epistemologies of reason, of rationality, of science, and so on and so forth. So they have an epistemic relation to them. These become the set of specifically modern practical orientations towards listening that were developed into the 19th century within science, medicine, bureaucracy, industry, and they help to constitute these fields. So he then would talk about the rise of um, 
virtuosic listening. So things like telegraph operators will be the classic example of virtuosic listening that gets emerged as part of modern industry. Stern also describes a period in which there was a gradual silencing of concert audiences. So when you go to the cinema now, you get instructed about how to be a spectator. Turn off your phone, don't talk to the person next to you, remain quiet. This is a practice, the discipline that Crary was talking about, of isolating yourself and learning how to be a spectator or a listener. It doesn't just happen, it has to be produced. And this takes place during the 19th century when concert halls went from being noisy places to being this expectation of silence. Uh, doctors, telegraph operators, radio aficionados, concert hall goers all began to cultivate new ways of listening that distinguished them from their 18th century predecessors. So we don't have time to go into these arguments in more detail, but for us there's a striking similarity in the methodological and theoretical connections made by both Stern and Crary. Both examine how new technologies of viewing and listening emerged out of the crucible of economic change and the cultural shifts that went with them. Um, giving rise to the production of new sorts of spaces, the cultiva cultivation of new habits of listening and watching, and the training of the body to conform to those habits. Their arguments are structured by a similar transformation, a broadly shared acceptance that the context for what creates this rupture involves a solidification of bourgeois hegemony and its ties to the emergence of commodity capital. <coughs> So this is based on the idea of the evacuation of the rural, the move of the rural to the urban, the emergence of the secular, the whole complex that we associate with modernization. It's a convincing set of arguments, even if it privileges capitalist economy as the driving force behind these transformations. But how can we think of them through a logic of comparative media? Would a comparative approach, approach alter the ways in which we conceive of modern spectatorship and audition? In what ways might comparative media unsettle some of these claims and offer new ways of thinking? <clears throat> so one way to answer these questions is to expand the context in which we examine processes of spectatorships, audition, and rationalization, to take the ideas that Stern and Crary give us and see how they play out in different contexts. The point of this is not to show how Stern and Crary are wrong. They argue, for instance, that they're making an argument, well, Crary says he's making an argument about Europe in particular, so it's located, he's not making larger claims. But we still think there are arguments they're making which, which are relevant, but how do we understand that relevance? Um, so one way um, we can turn to, you know, one example is Sudhir Mahadevan's recent book on visual media in India. Mahadevan describes the operation of bioscope wallers, and these are itinerant showmen who ply poor urban areas showing peep shows. Contemporary India possesses millions of people who download media onto smartphones, who stream music and images onto their desktops, who attend multiplexes with the latest in digital projection, who participate fully in all the transformations we associate with the digital age. But India also possesses bioscope wallers, some of whom use silent era projectors, as well as single screen cinemas that project celluloid, mobile cinemas that travel all over rural areas, many following the religious fairs that dot the landscape of northern India. So there's a recent film in the last uh, New York Film Festival, The Cinema Travelers, and this is about mobile cinema exhibition in India. And the cinema exhibition they follow goes along with religious fairs. So there's a large religious fair around religious rituals, and as part of the fair, one aspect is to set up mobile cinema tents. And they follow this very old um, uh, practice in the process of transformation. Uh, 
So surely Abraham and Amit Mahadesha's <coughs> film and the cinema travelers depicts the work of these mobile film showmen as they transition from the projectors they've been using since the colonial era to digital projection. The epistemic break that Kareri identifies for Europe never occurred in the same way in India, as well as many other places. So this is a, um, some stills from the film Bioscope Wallow. And these are the peep shows. So these are taken around in urban areas, and they're forms of the old peep shows that still are used in contemporary India today. Mahadevan argues the existence of bioscope wallets points to the various modes in which makeshift technologies coexist with capital-intensive industries, how the artisanal and the corporate live side by side. The art historian Kadri Jain, in her study of popular visual and calendar art, for instance, also makes this point when she notes, and she's talking about the history of um, the production of calendar art images. And she says, after investing heavily in modern machinery in the early 20th century, calendar art producers realized it was cheaper and technically, technically superior to sell some of that machinery and go back to hand tinting. The cost of labor was so cheap that they went towards full industrialization and then they backed away from full industrialization. So the teleological narrative away from handcrafts towards the industrial didn't play out. There's this residual interaction between the two domains. Uh, Jane argues optimizing production costs to prevailing conditions of labor meant mixing hand processes with machining processes, which qualifies the idea of the mass in mass production and mass society. India's media ecologies in this sense, Mahadevan argues, are different. They betray a world where, quote, the media of pre-capitalism <coughs> coexists with the media of late capitalism. And, quote, a craft mode of production produces into the contemporary era. No technology dies a predictable death in India, Mahadevan argues, nor does it undergo an ordinary birth. So according to the logic of modernization, the forms of capital that undergird media production, the technologies involved in their production and exhibition, and the modes of spectatorship that result are arrayed along a linear trajectory where one replaces the other. And we have this movement from the pre-modern to the modern, from the carnival, the festival, to the uh, isolated entertainment. But in India, as in many places, these different media collide in the same temporal space. Older forms of public association, such as religious fairs, that uh, are co-present with the most modern, um, modern technologies. So this is again the, the tent in the cinema travelers, and this is the audience inside. Instead of seeing these his the history of these technologies defined by rupture and break, it may be more productive to understand them as comprising a repertoire of possibilities that exist in a single ecology. Even in Hogarth's print that serves as the starting point for Crary's analysis, the carnival and the modern peep show are visible in the very same frame. In today's India, the possibility to see a film at a religious festival in a tent erected for that purposes, or in an air-conditioned multiplex where the price is five to ten times as expensive, remain you know, options for the same person. One can also go to a video parlor, which screens pirated films in local neighborhood spaces, or one can watch the same movie on a mobile phone or a laptop. It's not as if the person who selects the first option exists in a wholly different world than the person who selects the latter. We tend to theorize them as if they're completely different sorts of subjects, relegating one to a certain past, one to the imagination of the future, but in fact these are a repertoire of options that exist in the same place at the same time. Um, 
If we turn to Africa, we can also see that the spectator was never quite isolated from his or her milieu in the way that Crary and others see as necessary for the onset of modernity. Cinemas in West Africa, for instance, which is mainly what I know about, are open air, thus not so wholly separate from the um, places around them. So Crary's argument, if you remember, is that the spectator gets isolated. The image goes from being part of a public participation to being frozen, isolated, put into a peep show, onto a, into a museum, into a cinema screen, where it's now isolated from the world around it, and your fo attention is focused on it. But in Africa, cinemas old classic single screen cinemas are frequently open air and they have a different sort of existence where that isolation is slightly more porous. Um, excuse me. So moreover, forms of spectatorship emerge in Africa which do not have exact correlates in the West. Nukume Okome, who writes on Nollywood, describes one of these, he calls it street corner spectatorship. Another one he refers to as video parlors. And these are ad hoc spaces of seeing. Street corner audiences, for instance, come together in front of DVD and music stores, which are the main outlet for Nollywood DVDs. These stores, like so shops like this, will always use loudspeakers in order to broadcast what's going on. Many of them will frequently have a, have a television that's constantly showing Nollywood films. In some of the big ones on corners, you would always have, <coughs> have this television which is always showing um, films. And this is a mode of exposition which draws on a long tradition in Africa. So for instance, when you sell newspapers, there's always people standing around newspapers. People buy them, they read out the stories, they discuss them. We tend to think of things like cinema going, newspaper reading as isolated activities. We tend to think of the television as a domestic technology. But these are much more corporate in Africa where many people congregate around the same technology. We tend to presume that a laptop is you know, an individual item in the West where it's a corporate item used by many people in parts of Africa. Uh, so street corner spectatorship depends on the presence of televisions broadcasting a continual loop of images using public sound and image to capture the mobile population passing by on the street. So this is, these are stills from the film Nollywood Babylon, it's hard to see, but effectively it's night time, that's the television, people just congregate and begin to watch the television. You're coming home from work, you stand and you start and you watch the film. You can stand for the whole film, you can stand for part of the film, but this is the um, mode of spectatorship which is very common in urban areas of Africa. Uh, what marks this viewing population for Okombe is not ethnicity or religion, but membership in the informal urban settlements that have come to make up modern non-Western megacities, sometimes called favelas, sometimes called slums, sometimes called political society, depending how you want to define it, but this massive swelling of urban areas that has created the informal urban population are the sorts of people that then form this viewing public. Here, viewers do not pay an entrance fee to attend a specific cinematic performance. They simply congregate around the never-ending loop of film, which they watch for as long as they desire. On the one hand, watching televisions on street corners can be seen as part of the constitution of a mass. The ideas we're familiar with. They're not producing this media. They're watching the media that someone else has produced, and they're a passive spectator to that media. This is the classic definition of the mass. On the other hand, the image is not detached from the broader world. It's not isolated in a segregated space. It's not producing an atomized form of viewing. 
Um, spectators are not isolated psychically or perceptually, and viewing itself becomes part of the technologized experience of the street rather than a separate commodified domain. This is an experience produced out of capitalism. It depends upon and constitutes a deeply modern subject. One can argue there's no more modern subject, representative of late modern capital, than these sorts of urban viewers, the, you know, the slum, quote unquote, slum dwellers, the um, favelas, and so on and so forth. But this is a very different modern subject constituted by different sorts of forces than that imagined by Crary or Stern. One can compare this sort of experience to Anna McCarthy's work on ambient television. One can look at practices in New York, like in Times Square. These create cognate forms of public sorts of viewing scenarios. But again, there would be a slightly different formation out of which this subject emerges. Street corner spectatorship thus blurs the distinction between participant and spectator, a dynamic that also occurs in the other cinematic domain common in Africa, the video parlor. They used to be called video parlors now in Nigeria, where I know they're oftentimes called viewing centers. They used to always show films. They now dominantly show football, um, but they'll also show films as well, depending. So there's a migration of, of what they're doing, at least for the part I know. So um, these are stills from this um, film that's not yet been made, but I've been desperate to see it for years, which is about uh, video parlors in Tanzania and about dubbing, where people will dub over American and Nigerian films in Swahili. Uh, but this is the informal thing that you'll see where you create, it's, it's a form of viewing that is not quite the public of a cinema and not quite the domestic of the, um, uh, the home. Um, this is one in Nigeria, it's built on the top of a roof. If you can see, it's just tarpauling erected around the side of the top of the roof with a, 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 you know, another roof put on, on top. This is the actual building it's from. It's, you can see the tarpauling at the very top in the corner. So video parlors or viewing centers are small informal exhibition spaces located in urban neighborhoods, usually drawing on people from that neighborhood. Entrepreneurs use a room in a building, a small hall, any space they can cover and drape off to create a viewing center where for a very small fee an audience can come and see pirated films, football matches, what have you. Uh, and then these are a few more examples of this. Unlike street corner spectators, which depend upon the capture of mobile population, video parlors are in place in defined neighborhoods. Audiences frequently know each other. They are marked by the ethnic, religious, and class distinctions associated with certain areas. Um, so they're not the anonymous public that assemble, as Krakow would have it, in the urban mass and then disassemble afterwards. They're very much known. Video parlors sit in between the public anonymity of the cinema theatre and the private familial architecture of the domestic, partaking of both. Both street corner spectators and video parlors represent distinct viewing experiences broadly distributed in countries such as Nigeria, Tanzania, Kenya and elsewhere, which do not conform to our classic model of the spectator. This is not just so empirically in that they represent different empirical viewing experiences, but they also challenge the, the theoretical model of the spectator and the listener as laid out by Benjamin, Crary, Stern and others. One that is associated with the society of the spectacle, with mass consumption, with the mobilizing of vision as part of the secularization and spectacularization of capital. So this insight poses challenges for how we think about the transformations in spectatorship laid out by Crary and Stern. To make his argument, Crary has to place modern media in the specific formation of industrial Europe, and that presumes a set of assumptions. 
There has to be a shift from industrial to commodity capital, the erosion of the rural, the rise of the urban mass, advanced commodification, individualization, privatization, the dominance of the secular, the disappearance of religion. These transformations serve as a constitutive context for the theory of modern spectatorship, but they don't obtain in many parts of the world. None of them can be presumed in the same way in Africa or India. There, the presence of the rural, both physically and imaginatively, remains central. Religion was never replaced by the secular and remains a fundamental aspect of modern life, as well as a constitutive intertext. Um, we can also trouble these claims of Crearian CERN by turning to Charles Hershkin's work on the cultivation of modes of listening amongst pious Egyptians. <coughs> Excuse me. So like Jonathan Stern, Charles Hershkin sees listening as a historically situated activity. It's not just something we do, it's something produced at certain points. And like Benjamin argued that perception is historical, also listening is a historical act. Hershkin is engaged with the technologizing of public space by mediated sound, one that came with the advent of amplification. Like many Muslim and Christian societies in Egypt, amplification is widely dispersed, constituting both the modern urban auditor and also the um, modern religious subject. So these are images more from Nigeria, not from Egypt, but you get the sense of the broad distribution of sound on urban space and how sound is part of the technologizing of the urban world and constitutive of Pentecostalism, religious Islamic revival, and so on. But where Stern sees the production of modern listening as linked to ideas of rationality and science, Hershkind argues modern listening or pious Egyptians cultivate practices of listening in relationship to Islamic theology. Islamist subjects, as Hirschkind and others argue, engage in daily practices of dress, bodily habits, comportment, virtues, the cultivation of which allow them to lead a pious life. To listen to a sermon is a particular sort of discipline where according to religious norms, one must put aside everyday distractions so that one can properly focus on the word of God. This is not an optional choice for adherents, but something enjoined on them. So the act of listening is part of a religious discipline. Where Crary sees the production of the disciplined modern spectator and Stern sees the disciplined modern auditor coming out of these practices of secularization, for Hirschkind, they come out of Islamic revival, which then demand a different sort of listening than happened previously. And he quotes then um, an official publication from the Islamic University Al-Azhar. Quote, oh, I'll give it to you here. One need listen intently rather than just hear, so it is done with intention and directing the sense to the words. As far as hearing, is what, <clears throat> that's what occurs without intention. Close attention instains a, a, excuse me, entails a stillness in order to listen so as not to be distracted. God ordered man to listen to the Quran with attention. So if we go back to the stern quote I had before, the, the all-dial techniques he's looking at, the virtuosic listening, comes from telegraph operators, come from doctors, engaging in new practices of science and technology to develop, focus their attention towards certain sorts of sounds and ignore others. The same argument is being made here, but this is coming now from Islamic law, that you should listen and direct your attention in particular ways in order to live your life in accordance with Islam. What Stern sees 
while Stern sees attention as part of the rationalizing forces of modern science, and Crary sees attention as generated by the entire complex of the demands of modern labor, the emergence of mass entertainment, and the needs of expanding capital, Hirschkind argues that tension derives from the discipline of religious believers. Their ability to achieve this only comes in the interaction of religious law with modern audio media. It's not something that is just the repository of past lifeways. This is a particularly modern interaction that only can be produced in the present. He cites the example of Ahmed, a follower of a particular mosque movement who waits to listen to the sermon until the evening. So after he's eaten, after he's dealt with the kids, after he's finished work, after he's put away the norms of the day, he can then move into a room, close the door and listen. And this is the second quote. To listen to an Islamic cassette sermon um, with the heart means to bring to bear on it those home sensory capacities that allow one to hear soulfully, emotionally, physically. What would escape a listener who only applies her ear or mind? So I read that poorly. But what he's saying is that Ahmed then can then prevent the distraction of the modern day, can sit and properly listen. And to listen means not to listen with the ear, but means to open your heart so that you feel the Quran and don't just hear it. If you listen with your ear, you will never properly have the proper disciplined listening practice. But you can only achieve that practice with the mediation of the cassette. The cassette is alienable. You can turn it on when you want, you can turn it off when you want. You can control when that sound, when you're ready for it. It's the interaction of that media with religious discipline that creates this particular modern experience writ here as an authoritative Islamic experience but fundamentally a technologized one. So what can we make of all this? The examples from Africa and India show that the obliteration of the fairground did not take place everywhere in the Manakrari describes for Europe. One way of understanding this is to say that India, Nigeria, Egypt, or other places are incompletely modernized. They remain under the sway of religious and communal beliefs. They offer a cultural milieu that is distinct from, say, the advanced digital economy of the contemporary West. So this is really interesting about Egypt, but not so relevant to Cambridge or to New York where I am. We have this sense of a segregation. They're religious, but in some sense, we're secularized and modern. We can talk about being you know, modern subjects in a different way than over there. This is the sort of assumption that undergirds much of our research on media. Yet we know there are many Indians and Egyptians who are as thoroughly secular, as thoroughly mired in technologically advanced worlds of smartphones, streaming sites, and distracted techniques of attention as anyone in the United States or the UK. We also know there are many denizens of New York or Boston who are as fully immersed as religious worlds as anyone in India, Nigeria, or Egypt. This cleavage between two distinct worlds doesn't operate. The presumption of the secular distracted subject, stripped of all communal religious accretions upon which claims about the digital world rest, does not hold true. Um, comparative media, as we understand it then, is not about global media. The term global often stands in for non-Western territories rather than the US or Europe. Other countries and their media practice get brought in as examples of difference. The global then becomes the exception that preserves the centrality of the norm. Let's study media and let's have a class on global media. The global media will be the rest that we haven't talked about in the other class. And the term global gets brought in to preserve that split in some sense rather than decentering it. 
We don't want to organize our understanding of media in the non-West simply around difference. This is why it's important to pose the question, what are the standardizing forces of television, cinema, or the mobile phone? They're not just transitive objects that people in Nigeria use differently. They exert force. It also raises the question, is Krarian Stern not relevant? But I would argue many of their claims they're making about spectatorship and order techniques are as relevant for Nigeria as they are for Europe. You know, it's not just that we live in these different worlds, but how we understand that articulation is different. Instead, we aim to describe media practices in Europe and India as comprised of a repertoire of modes of perception and forms of practices that people situationally switch between. Media theory often presumes a smooth transformation of societies from one mode of living to another, as if the introduction of print, technological reproducibility, or the digital occurs in the same way across all of a territory, transforming every person with similar ramifications. But in fact, these processes are episodic, they're discontinuous, and many forms of residual media and residual modes of spectatorship and listening remain within the same territory. What is culturally dominant in India might not be so in Germany, but what India offers is not simply an example of difference, but a foregrounding of half-hidden but important processes at play in Europe or the US. The reciprocal interaction of early telev television engineering with forms of spiritualism is one example of this. Comparative media as we see it thus asks us to rethink the ontology of media by highlighting reciprocal relations between technology and cultural practices. At the same time, comparative media highlights the contingency of media evolutions. Displacing teleological and normative models of goal-oriented development, we become aware of contingency as the numerous accidental circumstances and possibilities that shape the histories of media. Thank you very much. of force that the, that the cell phones have um, in these contexts. And it gets to a question I had, I guess a bigger question about how the modes of production fit into your conception of comparative media, because most of the talk was about spec modes of spectatorship. Right? Um, and that question of the exertion of force gets to the production that precedes that spectatorship. And, how much, you know, how does that aspect of, uh, of media fit into your, your conception of what comparative media should be like? Because we don't get a sense here right, of the kinds of things that anyone's watching or listening to, just the practices of doing the watching and listening and how the technologies relate to that. Does it matter what they watch or listen to? Does it matter how those things have been produced? I mean, I'm sure the answer would be yes, but, uh, but you know, how does it matter um, and, and how does it how does it how does it relate? Because that's not. That's Thanks. I mean, so, so we chose the spectate partly because it's a canonical concept, and it's a, it's a broadly distributed visual culture, art history, media theory, 
and then we wanted to engage with that. Production would be another way to do it. In terms of cell phone, I don't know enough to say. Um, I've thought about this in relationship to Nollywood films, yeah. uh, which are this, for those who don't know, this very popular film form in, in Nigeria, um, which were originally called home videos, and they were narrative films shot on video originally to be screened in domestic spaces. At that point, there were no cinemas in the south of Nigeria, and Nigeria had no film industry. So they developed a form of distribution and production that's completely separate from really anywhere else in the world at that point. It didn't follow the models in India, it didn't follow the models in America or anything. So in that sense, one could look at the practices of production as, you know, I, mean, I guess the, the thing is, to what degree is something particular constructed by a particular formation? And if you go down that route, that's, I would argue that's true, but you run the danger of then exhausting cultural difference. And, um, and so the sort of, I go back to the old Raymond Williams argument, the social formation. We have a confluence of forces that produce things in a certain way. So in Nigeria, you never had an advanced industrial society. You never had an advanced commodity culture in the same way as that's been theorized by the poor or someone. And then you get these informal modes of, you know, um, you know, trade and economy that have deep African roots in forms of patron clientage, in forms of modes of trust. And Nollywood was a form of media production that rested on those historical structures. So it never became industrialized in a similar way. I mean, some people would argue that Indian cinema never became industrialized. So one could approach similar sets of arguments through the production end. And then you'd run up, butt up against the same issue of to what degree is Nigeria, could, you know, is it different? Or to what degree are they now involved in, and certainly as they expand, certainly as they now try and get streaming platforms, certainly as you can watch Nollywood on Netflix, you know, is there, how far can you extend this difference when they're beginning to meet in, in a certain way? And that's why I don't want to theorize these things as completely separate. They're in these entangled Brian, in the, the pictures you showed of spectators, um, I only saw male spectators, but some of the images were dark and I might have missed out. But I'm just curious about the kinds of differences among spectators that you noticed in your research and the differences between public and private and you know, domestic spaces. Yeah, so the, we saw images from East Africa and we saw images from Nigeria. Um, and the images from Nigeria from Southern Nigeria. So the, um, in terms of Nollywood, the dominant spectatorship has been driven both in South, Southern Nigeria and Northern Nigeria by women. And female spectatorship is absolutely key. Mm -hmm. In Northern Nigeria, women are officially meant to be kept in seclusion. Mm -hmm. So they're not meant to go out into public arenas. After Sharia law, they were banned from cinemas. So video parlors initially, at certain points, a video parlor could be a room in someone's house where someone charges money to go in. That was a huge issue for northern women because women go and visit each other all the time because they're meant to stay in domestic spaces so there's an incredible you know um, structure of women visiting each other at which uh, some then monetized it by charging other women to come and look so there would be a very gendered side to this then in male public space um or in you know women oftentimes aren't there the video pass sits somewhere in between the ones in Nigeria, in the south, more women can go to these. In the images I showed, they're soccer, so not many women were there looking at it. But the gendered nature of how that works is key. And, um, and I think 
you would move more to the domestic, to the look at female spectatorship generally, and the rise of the multiplex, which has allowed public cinema going for women. And even in northern Nigeria, after Sharia law, when cinema going was banned for women, when multiplexes came in, women go to them. And the class separation of the cinema from the multiplex seems to be ignored by Islamic law. Uh, with an interest in community media, I want to ask, uh, I, I realize that your research, at least as presented now, is framed around uh, on the terms of spectatorship, but flipping this to the other side of media making. Uh, what have you found, what, what insights could you share with us on the process of media making? And on a sort of different note, if we take it hard, like th this final point of global media versus media and what constitutes each set of media that we talk about, especially in an academic setting in the US. Um, if, if we take this at heart and we sort of try to break down this barrier and we decide to uh, see where that takes us in terms of like criticizing the classical theories of mediation, where does that take us? Do we consider a medium to be different if we broaden our conception of what constitutes media to other contexts that don't generally get discussed outside global media classes in, in US universities? Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, one thing, and the focus on spectatorship and on listening, I think what, what that highlights, you know, I mean, part of why we did that is it's very canonical, but another part of why we did it is because there is a lot of um, training or disciplining or shaping of those activities, right? And even this, a similar, you know, what seems very similar, like the listening of a doctor or the listening of a religious subject in Egypt, you know, they may, you know, they're both very focused forms of listening, but they, they are embedded in very different contexts. Um, and and, I, um, and we, we highlighted that because it does show that certain techniques or practices are, you know, you can look at them in, a, in this comparative manner and you can see very different specificities, even though they are more or less, this, you know, like, like an intent mode of listening, for instance. So I think similar to the, <clears throat> to the hardware and the, the technologies that travel or that, that are being used in different geographical locations, you also see different techniques and practices in different locations. And you, you adopt a comparative you know, perspective on that. And I think then with production, you know, I mean, Ryan talked about how hand tinting is still, you know, was more profitable in India, for instance, than in, in Europe. So I do think the same kind of argument you can make about production too. It's just that we didn't focus on it that much because I think for us, we were focusing more on the, the, inter, the interaction or the interface between certain modes of perception and these technologies. And I think that the exertion of force, to go back to the first question, the exertion of force does not only happen on the mode of, in the production area, but it does very much like there's a lot of force exerted on the listener or the viewer. And, um, but, but I do think that the, <coughs> that the media making is, you know, shares very similar characteristics and is also, you know, shaped by an interlocking and intersections of different factors that we, that the way we described it. But then of course, you know, one 
I think one tension that we grapple with is on the one hand we want to highlight how specific circumstances and contexts constitute what we call a medium. At the same time, there is a certain recognizability of what does a lecture all look like, <laughs> like this room, how does a movie theater look like, you know, you'd be like, you know, like how, like, so there are these physical similarities that produce very similar, you know, standards that are prevalent throughout the world, but even when it looks very similar, you know, and there are certain standards, then you do have these very <coughs> distinct specificities. But I think the question you ask is a classic one, to what does it really affect the nature of the media? But how far do you extend it, this difference? You know, do, is television different somewhere else? Are we going that far? Is cinema different? Or if you have community media somewhere, does that really fundamentally transform the ontology of the media? When you say community media, you have now a qualifier to the media. That means you're looking at the reciprocal interactional change between the medium and something else that is shaping that media. Is that just a situational event in a particular context, or is it fundamental to the ontology of how So, I, mean, I used to give this example of smartphones. <clears throat> I have a smartphone. Many people in Nigeria have smartphones. If I send a message to Stefan or I send my PowerPoint to Heather, I put it on Dropbox, I send it to her, Heather downloads it, and we watch it here. That is incredibly expensive in Nigeria. In Nigeria, the economy of the cell phone evolved differently. This is partly because when it came in, it followed the same model as in America, um, in which you get paid a monthly bill, and um, or you get assigned a monthly bill and you get paid that. But in America, I get paid by my college. I can usually predict in two years' time I'll get paid by my college. That comes in monthly disbursements. I can predictably pay my rent, I can pay my phone bill, I can do all these things because I've got that predictability. In Nigeria, where life's far more precarious, you get money, and then you have nothing. And so something that is pre predictable does not work. So they dropped the monthly bill very quickly to move to the prepaid cell phone card, which is common in many parts of the world. That makes the rate of downloading really high. So in Nigeria, people relay media a lot, Bluetooth to Bluetooth. Just in some countries, people use flash drives to move media, or they use SD cards to use media. The platforms by which media move are different. different. So I have a smartphone, people in Nigeria have smartphones. I rarely use the Bluetooth capacity on my smartphone. My friends in Nigeria use it a lot. So we have the same machines, but how we actualize those machines are different. So in a Sinondonian sense, this interaction between the external milieu and the machine takes place in different contexts, which I think are relevant for discussion. Do they go so far as to change the ontology of the medium? Is this the force it exerts really different? Then I think there are limits to that claim. Um, but this is exactly the question that we've been pursuing both historically in Stefan's work and then cross-culturally in my own. Um, I guess I'm wondering in the comparison between um, the West, Nigeria, and India, in terms of looking at the role of spectator plays in technology, where does something like traditional storytelling um, and the traditional kind of oral folklore um, come into that? Because a lot of the way that um, traditional Indian theatre was, or folklore in Africa was, plays a key role in the way the content is disseminated today, or the way people see their role as an audience. 
And to me, that's, you know, as, as a as someone who's not thought of it purely from a technological aspect, that's see, that's originally what I thought to be one of the biggest differences in, in these. I guess I'm wondering how is that, is that something you've considered in this paper? Um, so um, can I ask you, do you see then the perdurance of oral storytelling in the textual forms of the media that get shown on television and film? Or do you see the perdurance of the oral form of storytelling in the performative situation in which media are relayed? You see, see the difference? Yeah, I see the difference, and I think both. Um, yeah. I think there is an, uh, and I obviously I can speak more for India for India than I can for Nigeria. Um, but there is an overarching feel that an audience has a bigger role and participation in the content, and you're not just a spectator, but the content you're watching. Even today, if it's on something like a television, the same way you're going to see it in the West, your reaction to it, the discussions within a social situation. Um, is a lot more participative than other ways. I mean, you know, I, I think what you're saying is exactly true. I think in the West, the idea that audiences don't participate, you know, the whole reader, you know, revolution that happened in the 80s and 90s, was partly looking at active readership, the way people engage with text, and the secondary discussion around text. One can look at MIT comparative media, the histories of fan groups and the histories of the public elaboration around media to, to say that the, the fictional narrative we had of the mass, which was around the passive recipient of the industrialized you know, corporate media, never quite worked. And I think MIT, in essence, was a central part in making that argument. So it never was true here. And then you could, and then I think what you're saying for India is certainly true. Like in the case of Nigeria, Nollywood films came out of the theatre. To this day, there's hardly any film studies departments in Nigeria. The theatre arts was a dominant intellectual space. It used to be a very radical Marxist um, intellectual space, and so in the 70s and 80s, it was a real canonical place where people did their research. Now it's almost like a Nollywood training factory. But nonetheless, it's still called theatre arts, because that's the historical residue. That was the popular medium that did, you know, the, like it really McCrary, fair enough. The place of public theatre in England disappeared, effectively. You know, the revolution of Dennis Potter and Michael Lee and all that was to bring, try and bring back a popular play-like you know, phenomena to television, which was the mass medium at the time, to introduce a new popular. Uh, but as you say, in many parts of the world, the, the interaction, the intertextual relationship between the theatrical tradition and the, the Mass mediated one play out very um, I, I guess I have a sort of question about pedagogy when you're talking about sort of taking these discussions of the historically and socially contingent ways in which media are consumed and perceived and taking those out of the sort of global studies class. How then can we? incorporate these questions into sort of general curricula when, um, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of difficult questions inherent in kind of in that move in terms of, um, I mean, I come from an East Asian Studies department uh, in my undergrad and we were always sort of approaching, you know, how to bring Western philosophical and intellectual traditions in dialogue with the different historical um, contexts of East Asia, and I think a lot of 
<coughs> professors in the department, given the kind of problematic history of East Asian studies departments in general, were worried about um, how to, in the context of like teaching students, um, about how to make claims or make make meaningful connections or innovative ideas um, without, I don't know, um, without sort of, you know, getting into the really difficult problematics that that can sometimes involve, especially when students may not speak languages, may not be able to access the spaces that they're talking about. Do you know what I mean? I think that there's, there's a whole bunch of issues and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what, how you have brought these questions into your own pedagogical work. I mean, I mean, we, we taught one class together in the fall, so I think that you know, combining the expertise of more than one person may be helpful for teaching materials in this way, you know, and kind of so. So, but I I do think, of course, there is there could be a problem of a certain dilettantism, you know, where you look at you know where you're not really well versed in the language or in the cultural traditions of what you look at, and then you just see a few things and you generalize this into some kind of essence that really would be not what we want. So, you know, that would be the opposite of what we want. But but I, I do think that if you do a careful case study where you do some, you know, close, you know, like where you focus closely on specific, you know, on a specific practice or film and you, you, you know, if you contextualize two different case studies, I think you but of course, linguistic expertise and cultural expertise, I do think, is important to do this. So you, you know, you need to be fluent in different or educated in, in different, you know, different realms. And I think for us as teaching this, it's a little easier when we join our knowledge. I think for students doing this, it's you know, like if you do this on your own, it's probably more challenging. But but I do think that also the, you know the goal doesn't have to be that you do all of this in one person in one paper or one one book you know but more that that if you focus on one specific case study that you are aware of the particular particularity and contingency and specificity of this and to have at least the awareness of that there are other possibilities and potentialities there so that you don't naturalize. Or normalize, you know, like make that make this the norm. What 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 is the specific field or culture or area that you study? I mean, that's what I was trying to say about the thing at global. In the, you know, it should be that East Asia has to carry the burden of difference. You know, Hollywood, it's a location. American society is a particular social formation. It's historically organized, it's mutable and it changes. And so when we speak about media, we oftentimes speak from a particular contingent location. And that contingent location doesn't exist you know, in Egypt, but not in London. London's just as much a place as Cairo. And so that imagination that Stefan's talking about, of, of, of understanding particularity, then to me the main thing would be not to smuggle contingency into ontology. But then thinking that the way media are here are how media are. Digital culture is. 
in some way, then thinking of then, okay, because even within America, you know, is, is digital culture is in every part of it in the same way? And you know, all different parts of America, one could look at probably a range of different practices. And then there are more pedagogical things in terms of areas. Of if you are interested, I'm an anthropologist and I do research in African studies. And there's um, an anxiety over the term culture in both anthropology and African studies that is not present to Germany. Because of the historical colonial legacies of anthropology, because of the way that culture is used as a form of reification, because of the way that culture is used to typify and distance Africans as living in a different ontological universe than you know, the citizen subject. So we, part of the reason why I'm wary of these, of, like, of having to understand the location, but understand particularity, but not letting particularity lapse into difference, is because pedagogically, I'm trying to thread that. Um, I think Sudhir Mahadevan, if you read his great book, highly recommended, is also trying to thread that. To understand this is specificity to India, but to not say that this is some traditional India, that then traditional India comes in and offers difference to a, a, a media that is the same. It's no, the sort of contingent nature of this interaction produces a particular formation, but just as you know, all traditions may be present in India, there are different, there's been a number of scholarship that's looked at the particularity of viewing situations in queer cinema in America, in, in forms of ethnic cinema. You know, if you went to cinema in Harlem versus Lower East Side, early cinema was full of understanding that particularity. And that's the effort you know, to think about. To take something like Benjamin, because Benjamin is theorizing a particular moment of a shift in capital, of a rise of mass urbanization, of the emergence of the salaried mass. And out of that formation, certain claims about the historicity perception and distraction can come. Um, that's exactly what I want to do. But I cannot presume in the places I do research the same formation exists in that way. Islam never went anywhere. It continues to structure all media display. You know, house of video films are burned, you know, directors are arrested, you know, the interaction with that Islam is very strong and it's contested even internally with Islam. So then I have to generate a different theory of how it could, could you tell us specifically what the class was that you taught together and maybe give us a moment or two that worked very well or the opposite <laughs> uh, in terms of just putting your approach to comparative media studies in, into practice in the classroom? <clears throat> I mean, we, we did, some of the material in the talk was in the class. Um, so we did query, we did Hirschkind. Um, I think what the students liked a lot was going to the um, travel cinema. So the, the film um, that we showed you was being premiered in the New York Film Festival, which was in the middle of our class. And we had taught the query, and we hadn't seen the film subject was, we would sign some of the Mahadev. So we all went to see the film, and then it almost precisely encapsulated, serendipitously, many of the core features of Prairie's narrative, but where Prairie saw as a transformation from, there was the world of affairs and carnival, and then we had the emergence of the modern spectator. 
it was all there at the same time in the film. So the filmmakers came to our class. And so that was a strong moment where, as you can see in this paper, some of these concerns coalesced in some way. Thank you.